Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! How you guys doing this morning? Good? It's good to be here. I love, uh, love being at Man Challenge. I'm going to wrangle this thing for a second uh, while we start. Um, so as I was looking at our passage for today, we're in Philippians chapter 3. You guys can go ahead and turn there um, if you want to. We'll be in Philippians 3. Um, as I was looking at this passage, I thought of these uh, old commercials. You guys may remember some of these commercials. Uh, my wife didn't, so she was like, you, you better make sure people know what you're talking about. So tell me if, tell me if you know, remember. The Holiday Inn Express commercials, you remember these a while back, where the one I remember the most is uh, it opens like in a surgical room and there's like all these doctors performing a surgery and uh, it's like this serious kind of intense situation. They're doing the surgery, the, the surgeon's looking around like, all right, this looks good, this looks good, checking blood pressure, everything's good, all right, sew him up. And then he pulls his mask down and everybody else looks at the surgeon like, who are you, you're not, who are you? And he's like, oh, the surgery went well. And they're like, are you a doctor? He's like, oh, no, I'm not a doctor. But I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. Do you remember these commercials? There's one, uh, it's like a nuclear plant or something. And something goes wrong and it's like about to melt down. Like there's this countdown clock and it's intense for a minute. And uh, everybody in these offices are scrambling and there's this countdown clock. Like if you don't stop this, it's all going to blow. And there's this guy like with coffee and a donut in his hand and He's like kind of overseeing everything and telling everybody what to do and checking on levels and running the situation. It calms down and it works and everybody's celebrating and giving him a hug. And they're like, hey, wait, are you new on the team? I don't recognize you. He's like, oh, no, I'm just with the tour group. But I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. You remember these? So as I read this text in Philippians 3, I thought of those commercials. It's a silly example, but I thought of those commercials because what we're going to see in this text is a totally kind of upside down value system that doesn't make any sense. Paul, as he writes this chapter in Philippians 3, is going to list off all these values that you think would be great. You would think if you're going to be a surgeon that you should have gone to med school, that you should have practiced a couple of times at least, give or take, that you would uh, kind of know what you're doing and understand all these other doctors and know where things go in their place, not just stayed at a hotel. And by the way, I've stayed at a Holiday Inn Express before. I think the word I would use to summarize it is, meh, right? It's fine. That's not going to save you. But as I read this in Paul... I see this kind of thing with him where he's like, I could list all these other qualifications that you might be interested in, but I don't have those anymore. I don't care about those, but I can tell you this one thing, and it trumps all the rest of it, and it's better than all the rest of it, and it makes all the rest of it slide into place. So Paul's going to talk about this completely different value system, and that's what we're talking about today. And we've seen this throughout the book of Philippians. I know you've been in this a couple of weeks so far. Uh, We've seen, and you haven't, I don't think, talked about Philippians chapter 1 yet, but you're going to get there later on in this series. Philippians chapter 1, Paul has this great verse. It's a a great memory verse, by the way, if you just want to be able to kind of get a verse in your memory. Philippians 1.21, where Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. He's operating in the world by a totally different system of values, by a totally different system of evaluation than everybody else. So he would say, if I, if I live like Christ, I win. And if I die, I win. Like that's his whole thing. And everybody else is saying, Paul, you're in prison. Paul, you're suffering. Paul, you're about to die. And he's like, right, right, right. If I die, I get to go be with God. 
I win. Like he's operating by a totally different value system. You saw this in Philippians 2. Uh, last week, I think it was, you guys talked about Philippians 2 and the humility of Christ. That Jesus himself, who was God, chose to leave heaven and leave the presence of God. Right? This is the core message of the gospel that we have to preach. That God himself left heaven to come here and said, I know I'm God. I'm going to be a man with the same struggles as men and live in the same world that you do and face the same pressures you do and I'm going to have to eat and I'm going to have to sleep. I'm going to choose humility. So we see Paul use that as he describes the life of Jesus and says, by the way, you need to have that same attitude. Like all of Philippians is about this whole different value system. Uh, You saw it in Philippians chapter 4 when Paul says, uh, do not be anxious about anything. You can look around this world and be anxious about all kinds of things. A lot of us are. We look around and get anxious. And Paul would tell us, don't be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about the news. Don't be anxious about your stress. Don't be anxious about being impressive. Don't be anxious about trying to find your place in the world. Don't be anxious about what fear might be around the corner. Don't be anxious about anything. Uh, That that word anything, when Paul uses the word anything, what it means is anything. (laughs) Like, don't be anxious about anything. That's what he means. Because he's operating by a totally different value system. Because the peace of Christ, which transcends all understanding, all understand, there's no understanding for this. Totally different value system that Paul's writing about. Uh, Philippians is written to a group of people who lived in the city of Philippi, which was a pretty prominent Roman colony. So like this, this city of Philippi was pretty important in terms of the Roman economy, in terms of the Roman social structure. Citizens of Philippi felt pretty good about being citizens of Philippi. Like they kind of they had their values in the right place, they thought. Like, we're Roman citizens, and not only Roman citizens, but we're like popular ones. We're like important ones. A lot of people who lived in Philippi actually were retired Roman soldiers, who was kind of like the highest status you could get without being like emperor or elected official kind of stuff. These are the people of Philippi. And Paul's writing to them and saying, hey, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live isn't social status, Roman power. That's not to live, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He writes to them and says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Not your attitude should be that of a retired, important person that everybody honors. Don't do that. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And Paul writes to them and says, don't be anxious about anything. Don't try to control all your situation. You retired, important people who are used to controlling everything and being important and being known and being looked to. Don't look at that stuff. There's a peace that transcends all understanding that guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And fix your eyes on something else. All this whole letter is about a totally different value system. And the same is true in chapter 3 where we're going to be today. It all kind of fits in this great puzzle. So let's look at Philippians chapter 3, uh, and my, my plan for today is we're kind of going to work through a bunch of verses. I'll draw out a couple specific applications for you. The thing, too, I want to give you is like a preface into this sermon. This is true, this is true honestly, of any like sermon, any Bible teaching you listen to, but I feel it especially today because of the nature of what Paul's going to talk about. What you're going to get out of today how you're going to feel impacted by today is going to be directly correlated to how willing you are to be honest today. How willing you are to let the Spirit confront and convict you today. This is always true, but I've made me feel it especially today with this text. This sermon is going to get to your heart if you come into it and say, okay, God, show me. Like, be willing to be uncomfortable, be willing to be convicted, be willing to be confronted, and say, honestly, Holy Spirit, 
convict me. Holy Spirit, show me. I can give examples. I can show you what it's like for me, but I can't tell you what it's like for you. If you're open and receive it, I think this could be uh, helpful. Paul's words could, could get into your heart and make some change today. Um, so that's what I would encourage you with. Okay, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. Let's start. Finally, let's stop. Uh, sorry. <laughs> One word. Uh, here's what's interesting about this. Uh, my, my version says finally. That's the beginning of this. Some versions say further or something like that, different words. But the point is this word uh, is, is a like concluding word. You could also translate it in conclusion. This is my final thought. Here's the, here's the interesting thing, though. How many chapters are in Philippians? You get, if you have your Bible open, you can see. How many chapters are there? Four. So we're halfway through. And Paul's saying finally... So like he's saying he's going to wrap up, but he's not wrapping up yet. This is a very Paul thing to do, by the way. You'll, you'll see this in Paul's letters. He does this a lot, where he'll kind of introduce something, and then he'll get all sidetracked because he just gets excited about something else. So uh, look over. If you've got your Bible open, too, I just want you to see this because I think it will make, uh, make Philippians come alive to you a little bit. Like this is real stuff written by real people. I want you to, to notice this. So Paul in 3.1 says, finally, like he's, he's going to try to close and wrap it up, but he's not going to. Look over in um, chapter 4. Verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8. What's the first word in chapter 4, verse 8? Finally. So now he's going to try again in chapter 4, 8. But th that time he's actually going to kind of do it. He's going to really kind of pull all the threads together. But the, the reason I point that out to you is because Paul in 3, 1 is starting to try to close. But something is about to happen. Something is going to kind of get brought up. A dot is going to get connected in his mind. But he finds important enough that even though he was planning to wrap up, he writes a whole extra chapter. So what Paul's about to say in 3.1, to me, is like he's, he's saying, okay, I'm about done. I've said everything. And he said, ooh, 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 I've got to tell you this. And he writes a whole other chapter. So what he says in 3.1 is enough to get him sidetracked, to focus, to draw this out and say, I'm not going to close this letter and send it until you hear this. Like this is big, I think, for him. Also around there in four, uh, in chapter four, verse four, in chapter four, verse 10, he's going to say the same kind of thing. So he gets back to like, okay, here's my wrap-up thought. But in 3.1, he tries and then gets excited about something. So I want to hear what Paul is so excited about. Here's what he says. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And like we said, he's going to write the same things again, literally in about 20 verses. No trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. In other words, he's, he's saying this is like his wrap-up stuff. This is what he wants to say. Rejoice in the Lord. All this value system stuff. You could die. That's fine. You could be in prison. Doesn't matter. Jesus left his throne in heaven. You can find some humility in yourself. Just rejoice in the Lord. Your value system is different. You might be humble, you might be humbled, you might be humiliated. Your value system is different. Rejoice in the Lord. You might be in prison, you might die. Rejoice in the Lord. And he says it's a safeguard for you. This is good for you. It's going to guard your heart. Rejoice in the Lord. Let me just aside on this rejoice in the Lord idea for a minute. Uh, one thing I think is, is just such good practice for us as Christian people is to keep this rejoice in the Lord thing just kind of fresh and rolling around our mind. If you want to find contentment in your life, the key is rejoice in the Lord. Find something to be grateful for. Uh, something my wife has, has kind of helped us get in the habit of doing and, and has been so good for our family is every morning we just get out a little journal and we all just go around and say, what are you grateful for today? And some of them are little things. Like the other day I said, I'm grateful for a coffee pot. It works really well. <laughs> I mean, it's silly. Uh, our daughter usually says uh, something like, I'm grateful for my toys or I'm grateful for Anna and Elsa. She says things like that. But I love the practice, simple practice of saying I'm grateful. We're rejoicing in little things. Sometimes it's big things. But 
but that habit just shapes your heart so that you can live by the different value system that God's calling you to. The other thing I want to say to you guys about rejoice, this stuff doesn't, I feel a little bit like Paul. This, is, this stuff isn't like my sermon necessarily today. It's just stuff I feel like I need to tell you. This rejoice in the Lord thing, um, I got really convicted a few years ago um, because I'm, I'm a fairly reserved kind of guy. Like probably the most animated you'll ever see me is when I'm up here. Like if you're with me one-on-one, I'm typically a lot kind of quieter and more introverted. So this is maybe the most you'll see of me. Uh, but I got convicted a while ago, a couple years ago, uh, being in worship. And I'm pretty reserved in worship too, and that's okay. I don't think that's wrong. But I realized as I was standing in worship and I was singing, and it was heartfelt, and I meant it, and it was good, and it was shaping my heart. But I realized, man, yesterday, so this is a Sunday, and I'm thinking, yesterday, I was watching a bunch of 18 and 22-year-olds play football. And I'm jumping off the couch, and my arms are in the air, and I'm singing a song with hand motions and clapping, and I'm all into it, alone in my living room. And it's like, oh God, I don't think that's necessarily evil, and I don't think it's necessarily wrong to be reserved and quiet in worship, but those things were just a complete miss for me. And I was really convicted about that, that if I'm going to jump up and down for 18 to 22-year-old kids playing football, wearing maize and blue, and I'm going to stand here with my hands in my pockets and kind of sing half-hearted in church. I don't know where the balance is in that. But I just felt like I wanted to say to you guys, maybe there's a difference somewhere in you that you can rejoice in some things really, really well. And when you rejoice in the Lord, it maybe doesn't even look like rejoicing. I'm not sure what you need to do with that. Uh, but I just want to give that to you and say, maybe Holy Spirit wants to show you something in your heart to say, why can't I rejoice bigger? Why can't I rejoice louder? Why can't I rejoice more freely? Because there is stuff to rejoice. And uh, when, I, when I start to ask that question in my heart, it just kind of peels back layers of like, okay, I, I can rejoice different here. So uh, I think Paul would tell us in conclusion here, finally, rejoice in the Lord. It's so big, so, so good. Okay, now here's where he's going to get sidetracked, okay? Just like I did, but now it's Paul's turn. Uh, chapter 3, verse 2. He says, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. I mean, you know who he's talking about here? He's talking about false teachers uh, with Jewish heritage who are going around to the Christians basically saying, I know you've become Christian, but that's not enough. You still need Jewish circumcision. You still need Jewish law keeping. You still need to do all these good works. You still need to add all this other stuff to Jesus. Jesus is fine, but it's not enough. And that's this false teaching kind of spreading around all the churches. So Paul's saying, watch out. Don't let him get in. Here's the irony, though. I think this is so funny uh, with Paul. He's so, like, sharp. He's a little salty in this verse. Um, so one thing you need to know is that dogs, Jewish, Jewish people, would often refer to non-Jewish people as dogs. Like that was like their favorite insult for them. And so Paul is talking about Jewish people and saying, yeah, they're the dogs. Like because they're, they're getting you away from Jesus. So Paul's getting a little salty. Uh, he also says um, those men who do evil, those men who do bad works, these are people going around saying you need to do a lot of good works. Like that was their whole message, do good works. And Paul's saying, yeah, watch out for those people who are doing bad works. Like he's just getting, he's just kind of jabbing. And uh, the other thing he says, those mutilators of the flesh, this group was, was really excited about circumcision. Like they would say that's a big deal. And Paul's like, yeah, all they can think about is just cutting people up. Like watch out for that. Like he's just getting a little, getting a little in there. Here's the other thing I think is funny. Um, that phrase, uh, maybe, maybe you think this is funny, maybe not. I think it's funny, so you're going to hear about it. Uh, at the beginning of verse 2, and it says, watch out for those dogs. It's, three, it's just three Greek words that, that says, beware the dogs. Like, that's what it says in Greek, which I think is cool. Here's what, what's really funny to me about this, though, 
in Greco-Roman culture, back then at this time, there's actually a guy who wrote a novel uh, named, um, oh, what's his name? Petronius. Not Petronus, Harry Potter fans. Petronius was his name. And he wrote a book. And in that, he talks about how Roman people, had, they had pet dogs, like we do some, and they had signs that said, beware of dog. Like they had beware of dog signs. And that's what, like that's what this is. So Paul's talking about these false teachers and he's like, hey, beware of the dogs. Like this big sign, he's plastering everywhere. I'm writing it down in your letter. Beware of the dogs. Watch out. Don't let them in. They'll bite you. Like I think that's, I think Paul's funny. Uh, okay, verse three. So he's saying, watch out for that stuff. And here's what it says in verse three. For it is we who are the circumcision. Remember those other people are really into circumcision. Paul's like, no, no, no. We have the real covenant of God. Whether you do circumcision or not, we have the real covenant. We who worship by the Spirit of God, we who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. They're all concerned about good works and circumcision and flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. You see the different value system. He's saying, watch out for these people that are going to distract you. They're only interested in what they can see and what they can measure. And Paul says, I have no confidence in that stuff. You can take what you can see and what you can measure all day long. I worship in the Spirit. I have grace from God. You can't see that. You can't measure that, but I'd rather have that. I have no confidence in what I can see and what I can measure. I have confidence in Christ. And he says in verse 4, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. Here's where he's about to get excited and get distracted. He's like, okay, we're not going to do this measurable, visible stuff. I've got reason. If you want to play that game, I'll play that game with you, Paul says. I'll play, I'll play the measurement game. I'll play the visible, tangible, you know, scale game. We'll do that. I can do, all right, let's just talk about it. Now he's getting excited and he's about to get sidetracked. I myself have reasons for such confidence. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. That was kind of really what you were supposed to do. The, uh, another way he might be able to say this is, my parents raised me right. I was circumcised on the eighth day. My parents raised me right. They knew what I was supposed to do. Uh, of the people of Israel. So he was born into the right place. He had the right heritage. I live in the most important town, the most important nation. Of the tribe of Benjamin, that was kind of the favored son. So he's like, my parents raised me right. I was born in the right, the right nation, born in the right place, from the tribe of Benjamin. Everybody's favorite, by the way. It's kind of like when no matter where anybody's from, you know, they always say, I'm from so-and-so, God's country, you know. If people say that to you, that kind of, that's kind of what he's saying. Like, yeah, I'm from Israel. And oh, by the way, uh, Benjamin, right? And everybody's like, oh, wow, yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. So right family. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Another way I think he could say this, a Hebrew of Hebrews, is kind of like, I was, a, I was a Jew's Jew. I was an Israelite's Israelite. Like I had everything everybody wanted. Everybody, everybody could look at me and say, ooh, yeah, I wish I could be like that. I wish I could be like that. He says, in regard to the law, this is the end of verse 5, in regard to the law of Pharisee. We see that word Pharisee and we're used to them being the enemies, right? But, but back then, at this time, for Jewish people, Pharisees were usually the good guys, at least among like conservative, Bible-believing Jews back then, Pharisees were the good guys. Uh, another way Paul could say this, like he's talking about my parents raised me right, I'm in the right nation, favored people, everybody, I had what everybody wanted, Hebrew of Hebrews. When he says, I was a Pharisee, it's almost like he's saying, I was the guy that every mom wished their son would grow up to be. Everybody wanted, like, man, the Pharisees, mm, they're good, they're smart, they're well-studied, they're conservative, Stay committed, they're loyal, they're faithful. Man, I wish my boy would grow up to be like that. That's what Paul's saying. I, I'm the guy everybody wished their kid would grow up to be like. 
As for zeal, he says, persecuting the church. Again, that's negative to us, obviously. But he's saying, like, if I'm taking this Jewish thing seriously, I was taking it as seriously as I could. I was, I was, uh, I was living it out. I didn't just believe the right stuff. I wasn't just a Pharisee. I didn't just have the facts. I was doing it. Like, I was, I was meshing my faith in my practice. So you can't find any. I wasn't a hypocrite, Paul's saying. I believed the right stuff, knew the right stuff, and I was acting it out. And he says, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Uh, he had the right standing. He had achieved salvation. He was good. He lists all these things that are great, all the important things, this whole big resume uh, that he lists. But here's what uh, I think is, is um, really, really interesting about this list especially, is that it's a good list. It's a good list. Like, it's one thing if we're going to talk about a different value system, and the way we typically talk about this in church, and this is true too, this is good, it's just not this passage. It's one thing to list, like, all the bad stuff and all the sin stuff, and it's like, man, I tried that for a while. When I was in college, I partied, and I kind of left the church, and I tried all that, and it was empty, and I found true life in Christ. That's true, too, and it equally is important. What's interesting about this list is these aren't, aren't necessarily negative things. The persecuting the church deal is bad, but all these other things are, like, they're good. So Paul's not saying, like, man, I used to be the worst sinner, and then God found me. He's saying, I used to be a stud. I had it all. The right family, right heritage, right background, right knowledge, right school, right connections, right friendships. I had it all. Social standing, economic standing, standing popular, famous. It's, all, it's good. Some of it was even pursuing God. It's good. But he says, that's not what my value system is. That's not where I found my value. Uh, so then he goes on in verse 7. He lists all that stuff, all this good stuff, and here's what he says. But all those things, all those achievements, all those values, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. You read those terms profit and loss, those sound like economic words they are. These are the same words that were used in marketplace, like people are balancing the books after a day of sales in the market. These are the words they used. Even in Greek, it's the same. They're kind of adding up a ledger here. They're balancing a budget. And he's saying, these all were profit. Like I gained. This is, this is income. This is gross income. These are sales, like profit. He said, but now I count it loss. So Paul's kind of putting these two columns together just like we would do in like, okay, here's income and here's like debits, here's spending. I had all this huge long income list and he doesn't list, he doesn't list any negative. It's all good, but he still comes out negative. All this, all this profit, it's all a loss. doesn't matter for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss so he had all that, all that good stuff, all that list, all his resumes, a loss. And he says, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. Some translations say garbage. This is kind of a, a crude word. Like this is not a pleasant, like nice company word. He's getting a little crass because that's how strong he feels about it. Like that stuff is trash. It's garbage. I don't want it. I consider it rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Uh, something I, we kind of pointed out, but I want you to see in this um, little section. In verse 7, he says, whatever was my prophet, I consider loss. 
Verse 8, what is more, I consider everything a loss to know Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've lost all things. Uh, and he says, yeah, I've, for his sake, I've lost all things. So it's a loss. Everything is a loss. I've lost all things. But then look what he says at the beginning of verse 9. Are you following this? Lost, 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 that I may be found in Christ. This is a loss, that's a loss, everything's a loss, achievement's a loss, earnings a loss, status is a loss, but I was found in Christ. Here's how I would say it to you guys this morning. You can't find yourself until you lose your stuff. You can't find yourself until you lose your stuff. Paul lists all this stuff, all this stuff. Some of it's achievement, some of it's where he was born, some of it's status, some of it's um, stuff he worked for, some of it's stuff he deserved, some of it's stuff he was born into. He lists all this stuff, and he was lost, 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 but found in Christ. And I think Paul would tell us, you can't find yourself until you lose your stuff. You can't find yourself until you lose your stuff. So I would ask you guys today, and remember when I said, this, this is probably going to be as impactful for you as you let it into your heart. So let me ask you, what's your list? What's your list? I could give you ideas. I could talk around it. I could say, wait, maybe it's this and maybe it's this. I could do that for a little bit. But my guess is you know, right? You know the list. The things that you would rattle off, that list that you would make to say, hey, I've, I've achieved a lot here. Hey, I'm doing pretty good here. Hey, everybody knows this about me. It's pretty, you know, it's pretty good. You've got a list. What's, what's your stuff? And I would say you're not going to be able to find yourself, your real true self, who God made you to be. You're not going to be found in Christ until you're willing to lose that stuff. And the hard thing, like we said earlier, is that a lot of the things on that list could be really good. And you still got to find a way to let God have it and to say it's a loss. I would even pile up good things and say it's a loss. If I had none of that, then I would still be found in Christ. Uh, it's, easy, it's easy for me um, to think of some of this stuff. Uh, be, so be honest with you guys. This, this list for me uh, gets muddy, like probably for a lot of you, because so much of it is tied up in church stuff for me. So my good list, right, is things like, well, you know, I was, went to Bible college, studied Bible for five years. That's pretty good. You know, I'm a preacher. Like, I, yeah, I'm a preacher. It's a pretty good thing. You know, I'll be honest with you guys and say, like, one of the things I love about coming here, this is like honest. I'll show you my heart. One of the things I love about doing this or getting up and speaking and teaching in any group of people is that I love hearing that I did a good job. Like, I, I like that. It's, it feels good to me. And, like, there's a line, right, where we get encouraged, and that's a good thing, and God gave me this gift, and I want to use it. Like, Paul's saying, like, hey, I, was, I have this good heritage. I have this good training. Paul's able to use that good training. But, but there's something where it gets crossed where it's like, man, I'm considering that a gain for me. And I need to find a way for that to be a loss for Christ. And it's easy to, to look at things like, I'm at church all the time. It's easy to look at things like I sign up to volunteer and serve at all these events. Like I can list you the good things, like faithful to my wife. Those are good. Those aren't bad. But what we do is something shifts in our hearts that rather than being able to say, yes, there are things about my life that are good, but it's good because I have Christ. 
I'm able to do those things because he gives me the strength. I'm able to stand on a stage and teach about the Bible because the Holy Spirit has chosen to let me have a gift to do that. It's not because I'm so great or have much to offer you guys. I really don't. That's a loss. I would rather not ever stand up on a stage and teach to you, ever, if I could gain Christ and really know him. It's so hard to identify those good things, those helpful, those things we love, those things we like to be known about us and say, you know what, God, you can have it. It's much easier for me to, to list the bad stuff and pile that up like on a big bonfire. And like, man, I've got all this junk and all this sin and Jesus takes it away and thank God he does. And we pile that stuff up in bonfires a, lot, a little easier. It's a little more shameful, but it's a little easier to be like, that's bad. I'm going to pile it up and burn it. And God's like, okay, that's great. Like, I'll take all that stuff. I've got tons of grace for that. But hey, what about all the ways that you think you're pretty special. <laughs> like it's one thing to pile up the stuff that you know is pretty bad and you're embarrassed about. It's another thing to say, you think you're pretty good, you think you're pretty strong, you think you're pretty special, you think you have a lot to offer, and I think he's like, yeah, until you lose that stuff, you're not really gonna find yourself, the one I made you to be, the joy I called you into, the life I'm calling you to live. Until you lose your stuff, you're not gonna be able to find yourself. I don't know what all that is for you, um, but I trust um, that the Holy Spirit will help make that clear um, to you. Uh, here's the last part of this passage. Um, so Paul says, I'd rather lose all that stuff if I could just know Christ. I'd rather lose it if I could just know Christ. Here's what he says in verse 10 and 11. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let me draw out three words uh, here in these verses uh, for you that I think are um, true of people, uh, but maybe especially true of men. I think Paul hits here on, on, a, on a few specific things that he's going to say, okay, men, men for today, if I'm going to call you to put on the altar all these things that you think you find your value by, all these things you think you're pretty good at, all these ways you think you measure up, and God is saying, you don't measure up. That's all a loss. Just know me. Then I think Paul helps us see uh, kind of a, the reward of that. Like if you're willing to be faithful and say, okay, God, you can have my profit. I consider it lost. Here's, I think, what comes on the back end of that. It's a different value system, but here's what I think comes on the back end of it. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. The power of his resurrection. I think it's true of people, maybe especially true of men. I think power is appealing. I think we want power. I think we want strength. I think that's an appealing thing. We chase it different ways, but I, I think that's a human desire, power, strength, influence. I want the power. And that's some of what Paul lists. Like, I was a Pharisee. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was known. I had power and influence and strength in my community. But I give that up for the sake of Christ. He says, but, but, you give that up. But then you get the power of the resurrection. You want strength at your fingertips, you want power available to you, Paul says the truest power, the greatest strength is available in the resurrection of Christ. What is more strong than somebody raising from the dead? And he says that power is available to you. If you'll be willing to put your stuff on the altar, you can have power, you can have strength. The other thing he says, I want to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Some versions say participation in his sufferings. Uh, that was a word commonly used for like social friendships and networks. 
So much of what Paul puts on the altar here is his tie to his family, his tie to his former workplace, his tie to his former career and contacts and influences and like ancient Rolodex or whatever. He's put all that on the altar and said, that stuff used to be valuable to me. It's not valuable to me anymore. I'm willing to give up that stuff that I could know Christ. But he says, you know what you get on the back end? You get fellowship. You get brotherhood. You get partnership. You get to be with Jesus in his suffering. We get to be together in this thing. You may have to give up other connections and other status and other social standing and other friendships, but brotherhood is available to you. Community is available to you. Fellowship is available to you. The third thing, he says, uh, somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. That, that word attain in my version uh, is a word that was usually used of like a destination, like it's used a ton in the book of Acts when they're just talking about travel. So it said, then they arrived at Philippi. Then they arrived at Ephesus. The, the way you could say it is they attained Ephesus. Like it's the same concept. So when Paul uses this word, he's talking about, and so somehow to arrive at my destination, to get where I'm going, to have a target and hit it. And I think that people, but maybe especially men, probably get pretty excited about that kind of thing. I want to have a destination. I want to have a trajectory. I want to know where I'm headed. I want to have a goal. I want to have a target. I want to aim somewhere. I want to attain it. I want to arrive. That's what I want. I want to aim my life somewhere. And Paul's saying like, okay, I gave up my whole career trajectory. I gave up my whole social trajectory. I gave up my power trajectory. I gave up everything that everybody else would say looked important and valuable and prominent. I gave it up. But he says, but there's a new destination, there's a new target, there's a new value for you to aim at. You can attain the resurrection from the dead. And we're talking different value system here. Like it's not apples and apples where Paul's like, I used to be really wealthy and prominent and influential and now I am too. He's like, no, I used to be really wealthy and prominent and influential and now I'm in prison. But my value system's changed. I've got a new destination. I've got a new target. And so I think Paul is saying, if you're willing to put that other stuff on the altar and give it to him and let him have it, there's a new target for you to aim at. The, the one last thing I want to point out to you in this passage that I think makes it really come alive to me is this. Where it says, so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. What Paul, what Paul is trying to convey, I think, in verse 11 is not just a random like, man, somehow I want to get there. Like somehow I want to get to that. I don't know how we're going to do it. I hope I get there at the end. But that's what, when I just read it, that's kind of what it feels like. Do you guys feel that when you read this? So some, somehow attain the resurrection from the dead. Somehow I hope I get there. But that's not what he's saying. I think Paul is, he's just told us how. He said, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, fellowship sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so that's how I'll attain the resurrection from the dead. I think that's what he's saying. That's how I'll do it. The way I would say it for you guys this morning, the last thing I, I want to leave you with is this. You can't have resurrection without crucifixion. You can't have resurrection without crucifixion. It was true of Jesus, it's true of us. I think it's true in every aspect of our lives. You can't have resurrection without crucifixion first. And so my question would be, what needs to die? What needs to die? You can't have resurrection without crucifixion. You want to attain the resurrection from the dead? You want that to be your destination? You want to make it on the final day so that he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. Now enter into this reward. You want to attain that? Then the way we get there is, fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You can't have resurrection without crucifixion. So my question for you men, this is a challenging question. That's why we call it what we do, man challenge. What needs to die today? What needs to die so that you can live? 
Because in Christ, in Christ we live by a different value system. The things that seem to matter just don't matter the same to us. In Christ we have a different value system. But I would also say that in Christ, every death, everything you put to death, every hard thing you weed out of your life, every crucifixion is just a seed planted in the ground that will produce resurrection in you someday, both here and in eternity. So what needs to die in you today? Uh, I'm going to pray for you and turn you over to your tables. God, I'm grateful um, for this passage and grateful that Paul um, struggled with some of the same things we do, uh, with a little bit of pride and um, with a little bit of feeling pretty important, with a little bit of, um, of having a hard time letting go of things that he probably knew he should let go of. Um, but God, I'm grateful that, um, that our predecessor, uh, Paul, was honest enough to write that stuff down for us. God, I pray that your spirit will be active in this room uh, to convict people here of, of kind of their list of what needs to die in them today and of how you can make them alive again today. God, I pray that you would identify in all of us those places where we find our value, those places where we find our importance, um, those places where we have confidence in the flesh, in the outward, in the achievable, in the noticeable. You would identify those things and help us put them to death so that you could come to life in us. We want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the participation of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that's how we'll attain the resurrection from the dead. Help us, Holy Spirit, to do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.